Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. In each show, I have the pleasure of interviewing a guest who will help you and I understand the weekly Torah portion that is read in synagogues throughout the Jewish world. The Jewish world is now reading from the third book of the Pentateuch, the third book of the five books of Moses, and the book is entitled Leviticus, Vayikra in Hebrew. We are reading this week from the parasha known as Tzav, which begins in Leviticus 6 and concludes at the end of Leviticus 8. Let me give you an overview of the portion so that when the guest and I speak about specifics, you have a more general understanding of this week's uh, reading. God instructs Moses to command Aaron, who you remember is his brother, and Aaron's sons regarding their duties and rights as kohanim, priests. They will be those who offer the korbanot, animal and meal offerings in the sanctuary. In addition, God instructs Moses that the fire on the altar must be burning at all times. In it are burned the holy consumed ascending offerings, veins of fat from the peace, sin, and guilt offerings, and the handful separated from the meal offering. The Kohanim, the priesthood, eat the meat of the sin and guilt offerings and the remainder of the meal offerings. The peace offering is eaten by the one who brought it, except for specified portions given to the Kohanim. The holy meat of the offering must be eaten by ritually pure persons in their designated holy place and within their specified time. Aaron and his sons remain within the sanctuary compound for seven days, during which Moses initiates them into the priesthood with a very complicated ceremony. As you can tell, this week's parasha continues our discussion of the sacrificial cult and adds greater specificity to our obligations with, with regard to sacrifices and the duties of the priesthood. With me this morning is Rabbi Jonathan Stein, who is now the Rabbi Emeritus of Share Tefillah, Congregation of New York City, and who was at one time the president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Rabbi Stein graduated from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business and was ordained as a rabbi in 1975. He served as senior rabbi of Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation and a senior rabbi of Congregation Beth Israel of San Diego. He served as the editor of the Central Conference of American Rabbi Journal for six years. And while in New York, 
taught at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion faculty. He is well known throughout the Jewish world as a supporter of the state of Israel and a supporter for interfaith relations. It's a pleasure and joy to welcome Rabbi Stein to our show this morning. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Garden. Wow. Well, my mother is my mother was beaming from the next world. Thank you. <laughs> well, there You're was so much kind. more to say, and we didn't even yeah. speak about your wonderful family. Well, the most important thing is that you and I are classmates. Correct. And that and you and I are and you and I have been friends for a long time. So it's always wonderful to be connected with you personally. And thanks for having me back. Well, um, I appreciate our long friendship, and I appreciate, and I know our listeners do, the erudition that you bring to a conversation about the Torah portion. I want to begin uh, with a question which may be obvious to some, but perhaps not all our listeners. The Torah portion speaks about the Kohanim and gives great detail about the priesthood and the investment of the priests into their obligations regarding the tabernacle and the sacrificial cult. But perhaps our listeners are aware that the leadership, ritual leadership of the Jewish world today are rabbis and not priests. And so perhaps you could begin our conversation by trying to explain to our listeners what happened to the priesthood, which is so preeminent in the biblical text. Well, the, you have to have a, sh a short history lesson to understand that. The, the priesthood or ordained in this portion eventually, over the course of centuries, centralized worship in the temple the temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. All the outlying places to offer sacrifices were eventually banned and given up one place only. And that was when, as that operated, slowly, sort of almost underground, begins another way to understand Judaism, a different way to interpret the Torah, trying in its own way to adapt it. Those two streams, the one that's associated with the temple priesthood and authoring sacrifices, and this new group, which started to teach rather than offer sacrifices, who eventually became known as the Pharisees, they ex coexist until the Romans, basically killed all the priests after the revolt in the year 70, laid waste the temple. There was no more way to offer sacrifice, and somehow the proto-rabbis began a new interpretation which got us where we are today. So, in short, we transitioned from priest and temple and sacrifice to rabbi and Torah and prayer. That allowed Judaism to go back out, away from Jerusalem and into the diaspora, 
pointed us in a direction that Moses and Aaron would have no idea what we were talking about today. Well, um, thank you for that. I think what you added, perhaps, that our listeners, even those who are aware of some of the history, uh, was that the priesthood accrued to itself a centrality that perhaps was not um, intended by this biblical uh, parasha, that uh, the sacrificial cult initially uh, spread throughout the land of Israel um, and the biblical borders of the land of Israel. And over uh, time, uh, as you indicated, decentralized, and the rabbis wanted to return to a more decentralized experience uh, with God. Um, And so it was not simply rejecting the Torah, but finding a way to return to the Torah's uh, democratization of religion. Um, So even as your own career took you from the West Coast to the Midwest of America to the East Coast, um, you spread the word of God um, and back to the West Coast. Um, where we speak to you today. Um, so thank you for that. And now let's turn to some of the specificity in the Torah. And in particular, we wanted to begin with looking at chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. And I'm going to read it for our guests. So this is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 8, which is part of our parasha. And we find here something that Rabbi Stein and others found very interesting. Chapter 8, verse 6. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. He put the tunic on him, girded him with a sash, clothed him with a robe, put the ephod on him, girding him with decorated band with which he be tied to him. He put the breastplate on him and put on the breastplate the urim and tumim. And he set the headdress on his head, and on the headdress in front he put the gold frontlets of the holy diadem as the Lord had commanded Moses. The priests were (laughs) well-dressed, and they had, uh, as uh, the text indicates, a very, very interesting uh, set of vestments. What was that all about, and why was there a need for that? Well, clothing is a distinguishing characteristic in every culture. And religious clothing and the clothing of clergy also varies in every culture. So this is the way that this paragraph is actually specifically about the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. The rest of the priesthood, Aaron's family, also wear um, special clothing, but they don't wear things that the high priest does, including the 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 the, uh, the thing on his forehead and the breastplate and the urim and tumim and so on. Um, and there's only one person who wears this, so he's totally unmistakable. Um, yeah. And why do they single one person out? What's your well, sense this, of that purpose? It's 
the establishment of the dynasty of Aaron. As you know, in theory, the Torah puts up as our first leaders siblings, Moses, Moses' brother Aaron, and their sister Miriam. Moses is the political leader, Aaron is the religious leader, and Miriam is the first prophet. prophet. And so they rest the institutions of the society on those three. Aaron and his line are given the priesthood as theirs. And as you indicated, they eventually elevated it to the most important part of the life of our people in those days. So So he singles out Aaron in order to establish it forever in theory. Well, he singles him out. But even though we easily say the clothes make the man, there seems to be something very particular about these clothes. Um, And some parts of the clothing are not easily understood at first reading. So perhaps you can help the uh, listener with what do these clothes really mean? Uh, so I'll read it again, uh, if I can find it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Uh, he put the tunic on him and girded him with a sash. So do we just assume that the tunic is simply a robe? Apparently, it was the first layer, yes. And it was a robe of some kind that was, um, uh, a tr- it, it's understood as being the longest of all the various things. So it shows down toward the bottom of the high priest's feet. Okay. And then it says, um, they girded him with a sash. Uh, yeah. Now, traditionally, we think of a sash as going from one shoulder across the waist um, is that what they meant by a sash? It, it's not really. I'm not sure that the English translation sash is really appropriate. It What it is, is it's a belt. Ah. It's a belt that goes around and it attaches over the shoulders. And there's... Uh, I, um, and there, uh, it's held up by different cords. And then in the front part, over the chest above the belt part of this is what is the other part of the ephod, which is the breastplate. And that's unique to the Kohen Gadol. And it's held up. It's all considered part of the ephod, even though it's mentioned separately. And there's 12 stones on the front of the breastplate for the 12 tribes, each different. And in the back, there's a, there is, according to tradition, a little pocket that was made when the, when the, when the breastplate, which was cloth, was created. And in it, the Kohen Gadol was the only person who had what were called the Urim and Tumim, which was some kind of oracular device. A lot of discussion about what it was, but it was kept for important decisions. So, and the other thing that distinguished the high priest was the golden 
diadem or however you say the word that was on his forehead. And I think it said Kadosh Ladunah. Right. Okay, holy to God. What's interesting to me is it's turned toward him. It says it's turned to his face. Correct. Meaning he's looking at it. He's not looking at it backwards, so to speak. The congregation sees it. His people see it backwards. But it makes them keep their eye not on him, but on God. Kadosh Ladonai goes beyond him. And so, so that for, is, for those who um, need a translation, Kadosh Adonai would mean holy to God, but it doesn't really fit with how English has translated this. Diadnum seems to mean um, uh, nezer, hazahav nezer, a gold frontlet, hakadosh uh, ka'asher tziva uh, adonai et Moshe. Um, so some have suggested, I think, Rabbi, that it's the ineffable name of God that is imprinted. What we yeah. would say in Hebrew, yud heh vav that is printed on this uh, headdress. Yes, that's the most um, commonly understood way that this was done. Um, there are suggestions about other possibilities, but that seems to be the way that most scholars put it. So we have this high priest. He's adorned in all these raiments. Um, and we began by discussing uh, the difference between the priesthood and the rabbinate. And of course, rabbis in the main don't dress in these kind of vestments. There are perhaps some uh, Christian denominations in which priests wear vestments that might have some similarity to this, not the exact same thing. So what happened to all these vestments that the Torah talks about? Well, some of them are lost to us. Um, um, the originals, of course, and um, the Hoshan, which is that breastplate. breastplate. However, the rabbis took some of the ways that the high priest was dressed and put them on the Torah. So every Torah has a cover. Some, some people call that cover the ephod, ephod. Others call it me'il, the coat. Either way, it came from the high priest. There's a breastplate, that a breastpiece that many Torahs have. It's called the same thing as it is here, a choshen. It comes in many different varieties. I've never seen one with the 12 stones, but maybe those exist too. Because the um, in each congregation, the Torah is adorned with these reminders of the high priest, but it's artistically adorned. There yeah. isn't a set. Uh, obligatory design that each congregation 
uh, manifest. They can do it however they can afford or however artistically they want to represent this. So perhaps there is some place where they have 12 tribes represented with some sort of stones, but that would be nice. <laughs> uh, the other, the only other thing that I'm aware of is that um, on some Torahs have what's called a keter, a crown, and others have um, a bell-like remonim called remonim, which go over the two roller, uh, wooden rollers that keep the Torah together and open and close it. Um, and <clears throat> whether or not. The Keter and the Rimonim may be a reminder also of the special headdress that the high priest wore. Um, it's not a, as much of a direct linguistic connection, but it certainly fits the bill. And I guess the other thing is that if listeners go to a synagogue and see the Torah being taken from the Aron Kodesh and undressed and then dressed again, they may see that a Torah scroll um, is wrapped with a belt. It is, an avnate, and which so, is exactly the word used here in the Torah portion. Exactly. So while that's not as obvious, and it does seem that the rabbis um, wanting to ensure some sense of continuity um, transferred the notion of kadosh holiness to the Torah <laughs> scroll from that which is uh, spoken of regarding the high priest in the Torah itself. You're absolutely right. But you, you know what is so beautiful about what you just said? You said dress and undress. And I don't know if our listeners understand the import of that use of language, which is exactly how we do it. The Torah is dressed. The Torah is treated as a person. As a human being with feelings, you can insult the Torah. You can honor the Torah, and um, um, in in this way, um, you are undressing it. You're taking all of those priestly vestments off. You. This is maybe a bad language, but it's it's naked, meaning it's open. It's not hidden. It's not secret. And then we redress it tenderly, gently, and put it away. I grew up with a couple of traditions because of what they called kavod ha-Torah, showing honor to the Torah. For example, you would never turn your back on a Torah, no matter where it is in the room, if it's carried around. Um... And of course, if you drop a Torah, it's like dropping a child. And in tradition, you have to fast for 40 days. And in some uh, traditions, the entire congregation fasts. If the Torah has been dropped within the yeah. site of the congregation, um, and it's uh, interesting that you mentioned that you grew up with the tradition, you don't turn your back to it. I've seen in some congregations, that even individuals who come to the raised platform known as the Bema don't turn their back to the Torah. Right. right. That's right. Um, and in a, in, a, in a congregation that knows, as 
when the Torah service, when it's carried around the sanctuary, they follow it. Right. They turn with it. So it just shows once again the centrality, the reverence, the love, the tender care that we show to Torah, um, it, making sure that it is a well cared for. On the, it, it isn't a thing. More than a thing. It, it is, in fact, the representation of um, the high priest who's honored in such a way that yes. Torah now is the substitute for the high priest. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Um, and for some people, it also takes the place of sacrifice. Exactly. It's the it's the way of approaching God. Sacrifice was one way. Prayer is another. By the way, I, I think sacrifice is not only misunderstood, but underrated. How so? I think we have a, we have a visceral dismissive attitude toward the idea of animal sacrifice. It's a revulsion that we, that we impose upon it without trying to figure out why it had a hold on our people for centuries. And not only didn't, our people, but many people. Didn't they have the same revulsion that we have? Uh, anyhow, the, the reasons why sacrifice worked, so to speak, are things that we have distanced ourselves from. Raising animals, having animals as our assets having to hold the animal with your own hands while it is being offered to be there with death as well as life, to only eat parts. Of, I mean, there's, as you know, there's all kinds of ritual stuff that goes with it. But I have a feeling that when blood poured out from a sacrificed animal, remember the prohibition against eating blood, it was a dangerous moment. And a, and a holy moment, a holy moment, an awesome moment, you're watching life turn to death. That grips me. You know, there are um, two things that strike me as you eloquently discuss this. One is the meaning of the word in English, sacrifice, to give of something that is meaningful to you. Yeah. That as you described it, the life of the Israelite or others who had to bring their own uh, produce or their own animals, this was right. meaningful to them. It wasn't just um, giving something that they bought in the butcher shop. That's right. Um, and remember, they remember it had to be the first. Right. It was reshit, whatever it was. It was not the last barley sheaf. It was the first one. And when you give up the first, you never know what you're going to get. Afterwards, you give up that which is most dear to you. That's right. Um, and so in that sense, a sacrifice is truly something that touches the individual more it than um, the obligatory nature of what we call offering today in religion, whether that's a financial offering or some sort of spiritual offering for the ancients of 2,000 years ago, it was something that was central to their lives. The other thing, of course, is that 
in the Hebrew text, the word for sacrifice is korbanot, which comes from the Hebrew to come close. This was the means and methodology that was established to bring the creator closer to the creation. Human beings, as reflected in Genesis, are the creation. God, the deity, is the creator. And so you now bring something in acknowledgement of your relationship to that creator. You're you're pointing out the uh, root of the word for an offering, a sacrifice, is so crucial to understanding what it meant to our ancestors to draw close to God. They weren't stupid. They understood the meaning of the word. They had a way of understanding it and experiencing it that worked for them. And that even though it may not fit with our modern dynamic of what uh, prayer and ritual is about, this week's Torah portion that you've eloquently expounded upon worked for our ancestors and, of course, worked in other traditions as well. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Jonathan Stein, who has wonderfully helped us to unpack the Torah portion known as Sav. A recording of our show can be found on the chri.ca website or a podcast on iTunes. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I want to thank Rabbi Stein and wish you shalom and a good day. Shalom.